Section 19 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 6, Part 1. The fugitive queen received the most courteous attentions during her brief sojourn at Calais from Monsieur Caro, the governor, who sent everything that could conduce to her comfort to the house where she and her little company lodged, and notwithstanding her wish to remain incognito, he complimented her and the prince with a royal salute at their departure. They left Calais on the 13th, under a discharge of cannon from the town and castle, amidst the acclamations of the people, who were now aware of the arrival of the royal guest, and manifested the most lively feelings of sympathy for her and her infant son. Halfway between Calais and Boulogne, her majesty was met by a company of dragoons, who escorted her carriage to Boulogne. There she was received by the governor, the Duc de Mont, with signal marks of respect and offers of hospitality. But as he could give her no tidings of the king, her husband, her distress of mind made her prefer the retirement of a nunnery, declaring her intention of remaining there with her son till she either saw or heard from him. All direct intelligence from England being stopped, the rumors regarding the fate of King James were so vague and contradictory that even Louis the Fourteenth avowed that he knew not what to think. Meantime, says Madame de Sevigny, the Queen of England remains at Boulogne in a convent, weeping without intermission that she neither sees nor can hear any certain news of her husband, whom she passionately loves. The agonizing pause was at length broken. Strickland, the vice-admiral of England, says the Duc de Saint-Simon, has arrived at Calais, and we understand from him that King James has been brought back to London, where, by order of the Prince of Orange, he is attended by his own guards. It is thought he will escape again. Strickland has remained faithful to the king, his master, finding that Lord Dartmouth would not do anything. He demanded permission to retire from the fleet at Portsmouth, and has come in a small vessel to Calais. The painful tidings which Sir Roger Strickland had brought were at first carefully concealed from the queen by her friends, but on the 19th, her passionate importunity for intelligence of her husband elicited the truth from a Benedictine monk, a Capuchin, and an officer who had just escaped. She implored them to tell her all they knew, and they replied in a sorrowful tone, Sacred Majesty, the King has been arrested. I know not, says an eyewitness, which was the most distressing to us, the sad news of the detention of the king, or the effect it produced on the queen, our mistress. Her first words were to express her determination of sending the infant prince on to Paris, while she returned to England to use what exertions she could for her lord's liberation, or else to share his fate, whatever it might be. Her faithful attendants had the greatest trouble to dissuade her from this wild project, by representing to her that she would only increase his troubles, without being able to render him any service, and that she ought to be implicitly guided by the directions which he gave her at parting. The same day arrived the principal equerry of the King of France, with letters and sympathizing messages for the Queen. She was fortunately compelled to compose herself to receive these with suitable acknowledgments. Louis had sent a noble escort, with his own carriages and horses, to convey her to the castle of Vincennes, where he had, in the first instance, 
ordered to be prepared for her reception he had commanded that in every town through which she passed she should be received with the same honours as if she had been a queen of france he had also as the roads were almost impassable with the deep snow which covered the whole face of the country sent a band of pioneers to precede her majesty's carriage and mark out a straight line for her progress laying everything smooth and plain before her so that she might be able to travel with the least possible fatigue a piece of gallantry that was duly appreciated by the english ladies and gratefully acknowledged by king james the faithful followers of mary beatrice were urgent for her to commence her journey towards paris dreading the possibility of her finding means of returning to england if she remained on the coast at length she yielded to their persuasions and departed on the twentieth of december for montreux the duc de mont and a cavalcade of gentlemen escorted her majesty from boulogne till within three leagues of montreux there she and her little train were lodged in the house of the king of france they remained there the whole of that day and by the grace of god says the historian of the escape learned that king james was still at whitehall the morbid state of despondency into which james sunk after the departure of his queen is sufficiently testified by the following letter which he wrote to lord dartmouth the next morning king james to lord dartmouth whitehall december tenth sixteen eighty eight things having so bad an aspect i could no longer defer securing the queen and my son which i hope i have done and that by to-morrow by noon they will be out of the reach of my enemies i am at ease now i have sent them away i have not heard this day as i expected from my commissioners with the prince of orange who i believe will hardly be prevailed on to stop his march so that i am in no good way nay in as bad a way as is possible i am sending the duke of berwick down to portsmouth by whom you will know my resolution concerning the fleet under your command and what resolutions i have taken till when i would not have you stir from the place where you are for several reasons that morning the king spent in a state of considerable agitation till relieved of some portion of his anxiety regarding his wife and son by the return of st victor who told him that he had seen her majesty with the prince safely on board the yacht and under sail for france then he assumed a more cheerful aspect and ordered the guards to be in readiness to attend him to uxbridge the next day and talked of offering battle to his foes though he confessed to barillon that he had not a single corps on whose fidelity he could rely the same day james learned that plymouth bristol and other places had submitted themselves to the prince of orange and that a regiment of scotch horse had deserted nor was there an hour observed sir john raresby emphatically but his majesty received like job ill news of one sort or another so that prompted by most fatal advice the next day being the eleventh he withdrew himself privately before his departure james wrote to the earl of feversham informing him that he had been compelled to send away the queen and the prince of wales lest their lives should be endangered by falling into the enemy's hands and that he was about to follow them that could he have but relied on his troops he would at least have had one blow for it when this letter was read to the soldiers many of them wept after a day of excessive mental fatigue and agitation the unfortunate king retired to his lonely pillow as he was stepping into bed he told the earl of mulgrave 
that he had good hopes of an accommodation with the prince of orange does he advance or retreat asked the earl the king owned that his adversary continued to advance mulgrave shook his head with a melancholy air james had summoned his council to meet the next morning at nine o'clock without any intention of being present it has been generally said but his mind was in too unsettled a state to be firm to any purpose long about midnight he rose and disguised himself in a black periwig and plain clothes left his bedroom by the little door in the ruelle and attended only by sir edward hales who was waiting for him descended the back stairs and crossed privy gardens as the queen had done two nights before got into a hackney coach proceeded to the horse ferry and crossed the thames in a little boat with a single pair of oars to bow hall james had taken the great seal with him from whitehall doubtless with the idea that he might have occasion to use it on his arrival in france to give effect to royal letters pardons and commissions but prompted by an impulse which appears clearly symptomatic of a disorganized brain he threw it into the river while crossing it was well perhaps for some of the leaders of the revolution happy certainly for the daughters of the unfortunate king that it was only one of the bauble types of regal power that he flung into those dark deep waters in the silence and loneliness of that melancholy voyage many an unsuccessful speculator in modern times has plunged himself into eternity from causes far less exciting than those which had impelled the betrayed king and father to leave his palace in the dead of a wintry night with only one companion to encounter greater perils than those from which he fled horses stood ready for his majesty at bow hall he mounted in haste attended by sir edward hales and conducted by his guide through byways crossed the medway to aylesford bridge he found sheldon one of his equerries waiting for him at woolpeck with a fresh relay of horses at ten o'clock in the morning he arrived at elmley ferry near feversham and embarked in a custom-house hoy which had been hired for the passage of sir edward hales the wind was fresh and the vessel requiring more ballast the master ran her ashore near sheerness unfortunately sir edward hales while they were waiting for the rising of the tide sent his servant to the feversham post office and as his seat was in that neighbourhood his livery was known the man was dodged to the riverside by some of the members of a gang of ruffians who had formed a profitable association by stopping the panic-stricken catholics in their flight to france and stripping them of their property these men perceiving that sir edward hales was in the hoy came to the number of fifty in three boats armed with swords and pistols at eleven o'clock at night and boarded the hoy just as she was beginning to float they leaped into the cabin and seized the king and his two companions with abusive language sir edward hales perceiving that his majesty was unknown took ames the leader of those desperadoes aside and putting fifty guineas into his hand promised him one hundred more if he would allow them to escape ames took the money and promised to go on shore to make arrangements for that purpose but advised them to give up all their valuables into his hands as he could not answer for the conduct of his people while he was gone the king gave him three hundred guineas all the money he had and his watch and true to his methodical habits of business took his receipt for those trifles ames went off with his prey and then his men came rudely about the king and insisted on searching his person for more booty james nevertheless succeeded in securing his coronation ring and three great diamond bodkins belonging to the queen 
as soon as the tide rose high enough the ruffians brought the hoy up to feversham and putting the king and his companions into a coach carried them to an inn amidst the yells and insults of the mob by whom his majesty was mistaken for the chaplain of sir edward hales or father petre this was the third agitating night james had passed without sleep since his sorrowful parting with his wife and child when morning came a seaman among the crowd who had served under him recognized him and burst into tears knelt and begged to kiss his hand overpowered by this touching proof of devotion from his humble liegeman james wept the instinctive act of homage performed by the true-hearted sailor betrayed the rank of the royal prisoner the very ruffians who had plundered and insulted him when they saw his tears were awed and melted they fell on their knees and offered to return their pillage james bade them keep the money and would only receive the sword and jewels the seamen formed themselves into a guard about his person and declared that not a hair on his head should be touched james ought to have been satisfied that he still had many loyal hearts among his people even at feversham something might have been done had he been in a state of mind to take advantage of the revulsion of feeling manifested in his favor but he was not he began to talk in a rambling and incoherent manner one minute he wept and asked what crimes had he committed to deserve such treatment and spoke of the ill offices done to him by the black coats said that the prince of orange sought not only his crown but his life and implored those present to get him a boat that he might escape or his blood would be on their heads then he asked for pen ink and paper wrote tore wrote again and at last succeeded in penning a brief summons to lord winchelsea that nobleman hastened to his majesty who then demanded to be conducted to the house of the mayor the rabble objected to his removal but the seamen carried the point though with difficulty the mayor was an honest man and treated his sovereign with all the respect in his power james talked wildly and of things little to the purpose of the virtues of st winifred's well and his loss of a piece of the true cross which had belonged to edward the confessor he was finally seized with another fit of bleeding at the nose which probably averted a stroke of apoplexy or frenzy but made him very sick and weak the earl of winchelsea who had been groom of the bedchamber to his majesty when duke of york and had married the accomplished anne kingsmill a favorite maid of honor of the queen was much concerned at the state in which he found his royal master and besought him not to persist in his rash design of leaving england reasoned with him on the ruinous effect such a step must have on his affairs and at last succeeded in calming him james made him lord lieutenant of the county of kent and the governor of dover castle on the spot the next day sir james oxenden came with the militia under pretence of guarding his majesty from the rabble but in reality to prevent him from escaping a piece of gratuitous baseness for which he was not thanked by william for nearly two days no one in london knew what had become of his majesty on the morning of the thirteenth of december an honest kentish peasant presented himself at the door of the council chamber at whitehall stating that he was a messenger from king james it was long before he could obtain attention at last sheffield earl of mulgrave being apprised of his business insisted on bringing him in 
he delivered a letter unsealed and without superscription containing one sentence only written in the well-known hand of their fugitive sovereign apprising them that he was a prisoner in the hands of the rabble at feversham the faithful messenger who had fulfilled his promise to his royal master by delivering this letter described with tears the distress in which he had left his majesty at the inn the generous and courageous loyalty of this noble man of low degree ought to have shamed the titled traitor halifax who sat that day as president of the council and would fain have adjourned the assembly to prevent anything being done for the relief of the king but mulgrave boldly stood forth and with a burst of manly eloquence represented the baseness of leaving their king to be torn to pieces by the rabble and insisted that measures should be taken for his personal safety since with all his popery he was still their sovereign he then proposed that lord feversham with two hundred of the guards should be instantly dispatched with his majesty's coaches to invite him to return shame kept those silent who fain would have opposed this motion and the lords aylesbury lichfield yarmouth and middleton posted down to feversham to acquaint the king that his guards were coming to escort him to london whither his friends desired him to return james determined to do so and commenced his journey at sittingbourne he was met by his guards and equipage and many of his faithful friends flocked round him he slept that night at rochester whence he dispatched lord feversham with a letter to the prince of orange inviting him to come to london for the purpose of an amicable treaty the next day december sixteenth he returned to his capital and was greeted with impassioned demonstrations of affection he came through the city to whitehall a body of gentlemen forming a volunteer guard of honor preceded him bareheaded the bells rang joyously and the air was rent with the acclamations of people of all degrees who ran in crowds to welcome him these manifestations of loyalty were far more flattering spontaneous as they were and the free-will offerings of popular sympathy in his distress than if he had returned with a decisive victory over the forces of the dutch prince yet every art had been used to alarm the metropolis with warnings and incendiary outcries of irish and popish massacres but in spite of everything the people showed that though they hated popery they loved the king whitehall was never more crowded than on that occasion even to the royal bedchamber among the numerous candidates for audience was a deputation from the freebooters at feversham who came to beg his majesty's pardon for their late outrage and to proffer once more a restitution of the gold of which they had rifled him james not only bade them keep it but gave them ten guineas to drink his health cheered by the apparent reaction that had taken place the king exerted himself to hold his court and supped in state i stood by him during his supper says lord dartmouth and he had told me all that had happened to him at feversham with as much unconcernedness as if they had been adventures of some other person and directed a great deal of his discourse to me though i was but a boy that night the metropolis was illuminated and the streets were full of bonfires scarcely however had the king retired to his bedchamber when zulestein demanded an immediate audience being charged with letters from the dutch prince his master requiring that his majesty should remain at rochester while he came to sojourn in london james in a conciliatory tone replied that the request came too late and as he was now in london a personal interview could the better take place the only outrage that elicited an expression of anger was the arrest and imprisonment of his accredited messenger lord feversham 
he expressed surprise and indignation and wrote to the prince demanding his release william was now acting as king of england de facto without any other authority than that bestowed upon him by foreign troops and deserters james was without money and those who ought to have offered unasked to supply his exigencies exhibited a churlish spirit truly disgraceful lord Bellasis, a roman catholic peer refused to assist him with the loan of a thousand pounds and a base regard to purse preservation thinned his presence chamber the next morning it was then that two noble gentlemen colin earl of balcares and the gallant viscount dundee presented themselves charged with offers of service from his privy council in scotland they were received affectionately by the king but observed that none were with him but some of the gentlemen of his bedchamber one of the generals of his disbanded army entered while they were there and told the king that most of his generals and colonels of his guards had assembled that morning upon observing the universal joy of the city on his return the result of their meeting was to tell his majesty that much was still in their power to serve and defend him that most part of the disbanded army was either in london or near it and that if he would order them to beat their drums they were confident twenty thousand men could be got together before the end of the day my lord said the king i know you to be my friend sincere and honourable the men who sent you are not so and i expect nothing from them he then said it was a fine day and he would take a walk none attended him but colin and lord dundee when he was in the mall he stopped and looked at them and asked how they came to be with him when all the world had forsaken him and gone to the prince of orange colin said their fidelity to so good a master would ever be the same they had nothing to do with the prince of orange then the king said will you too as gentlemen say you have still an attachment for me sir we do will you give me your hands upon it as men of honour they did so well i see you are the men i always took you to be you shall know all my intentions i can no longer remain here but as a cipher or be a prisoner to the prince of orange and you know there is but a small distance between the prisons and the graves of kings therefore i go for france immediately when there you shall have my instructions you lord balcares shall have a commission to manage my civil affairs and you lord dundee to command my troops in scotland james amused himself during some part of this day his last of regal authority in england by touching for the evil having succeeded in borrowing one hundred guineas of lord godolphin to enable him to go through the ceremonial a piece of gold being always bound to the arm of the patient by the sovereign and james had been robbed of his last coin by the freebooters at feversham that night when the king was about to retire to bed lord craven came to tell him that the dutch guards horse and foot were marching through the park in order of battle to take possession of whitehall the stout old earl though in his eightieth year professed his determination rather to be cut to pieces than resign his post at whitehall to the dutch but the king says sheffield prevented that unnecessary bloodshed with a great deal of care and kindness he sent for count solmes the dutch commander and told him there must be some mistake were not your orders for st james's the count produced his orders on which the king commanded his gallant old servant to withdraw his men 
the english guards reluctantly gave place to the foreigners by whom they were superseded and the king retired to bed fancying that he had purchased one night's repose at any rate by this concession worn out by the agonizing excitement and continual vigils of the last dreadful week he slept and so profoundly that to have dismissed his overwearied spirit from its mortal tenement by one swift and subtle stroke would have been a coup de grace a greater barbarity was committed william sent deliberately to rouse his unfortunate uncle from that happy oblivion of his sufferings with an insolent message that it was thought convenient for him to leave his palace by ten o'clock the next morning three english peers were found capable of undertaking the commission the plan was suggested by halifax who advised william to employ the dutch officers on this ungracious errand by your favour my lords said william sternly the advice is yours and you shall carry it yourselves naming halifax delamere and shrewsbury at two o'clock in the morning this worthy trio presented themselves at the door of king james's antechamber and knocking loudly rudely demanded admittance to his presence the earl of middleton who was lord in waiting told them the king was in bed and asleep and begged them to wait till morning they replied they came from the prince of orange with a letter and they must deliver it that instant middleton approached the royal bed and drew back the curtain but the king was in so sound a sleep that it did not wake him lord middleton was compelled to speak loudly in his ear to dispel his death-like slumber he started at first but perceiving middleton kneeling by him asked what was the matter and bade him admit the messengers when they entered james recognized two open enemies shrewsbury and delamere and one false servant halifax whom he had employed as one of his commissioners to negotiate a treaty with the prince of orange and had thus afforded an opportunity both of deceiving and betraying him another painful lesson for the royal timon of british history on his want of attention to moral worth in those whom he bestowed his confidence halifax behaved with singular disrespect to his sovereign on this occasion and when james objected to ham house the place named for him to retire to by william as a very ill winter house being damp and unfurnished he treated his majesty's objections with contempt james said he should prefer going to rochester if he left town and after some discussion it was agreed but that he should go by water attended by dutch guards when james wished to go through the city halifax rudely overruled that plan by saying it would breed disorder and move compassion the next morning december eighteenth was wet and stormy but though james told the three lords who had undertaken the ungracious office of expelling him from his palace that the weather was unfit for the voyage halifax insisted upon it the foreign ministers and a few of his own peers and gentlemen came to take leave of him which they did with tears and as a last mark of respect attended him to the water's edge notwithstanding the tempestuous wind and the heavy rain which now fell in torrents the banks of the river were crowded with sympathizing spectators who came to take a parting look of their unfortunate sovereign at twelve o'clock james entered the barge appointed for his convoy attended by five faithful gentlemen who volunteered to accompany him namely the earls of arran aylesbury dunbarton lichfield and lord dundee they were his only british escort he had asked for a hundred of his own foot guards and was peremptorily denied 
a hundred dutch guards were in boats before and behind the royal barge but they were so long in embarking that the tide was lost and the king remained a full hour sitting in the barge waiting their convenience exposed to the storm before the signal was given for the rowers to move on the english were very sorrowful at seeing him depart says barillon most of them had tears in their eyes there was an appearance of consternation in the people when they found that their king was surrounded by dutch guards and that he was in fact a prisoner evelyn in his diary for that day records the departure of his royal master in these brief but expressive words i saw the king take barge to gravesend a sad sight the prince comes to st james's and fills whitehall with dutch guards even then if james could have been roused from the morbid lethargy of despair into which the unnatural conduct of his daughters and the treachery of his ministers had plunged him his dutch nephew might have had cause to repent his expedition ministers counsellors and general officers might be false to their oaths of allegiance but the great body of the people were true and eager to fight for their native sovereign if he would but have trusted their loyalty the greatest offence after all that james ever gave to his country and for which he has never been forgiven was that he suffered himself to be driven away by a foreign prince without a struggle the season of manly enterprise was past and he felt incapable of grappling with the storm in his present state of mind and body End of section nineteen